Well, here we go with another fantastic podcast from your friends at Books of the Year. It feels like it's been a little while. We had that sort of spurt, didn't we, of yes. putting putting one out almost once a week. Hourly. Hourly. And now it's a, we're, we're sort of reining it back a little. I've been away. Yes, you have, haven't you? Where yes. have you been? I went to Cornwall and Devon. Uh-huh. Very nice. Which is very nice. It popped in and saw Child 3, who deigned to offer us a, <laughs> an hour. <laughs> So, well, we're still we're still in the area for tomorrow. I'm very busy. I'm oh, very sorry. <laughs> sorry, can't. Not now. You know, uh, and all that kind of stuff. We, we, and, and what have you been up to? Do you know what I've actually been doing? What? I have decided I'm going to start writing. So I Yay! have... Yes. So I am in the middle of my opening chapter. And is this for real? It is for real. As genuinely what I... I didn't tell you this before. Why is it but, that everybody thinks they can write books? Yeah, exactly, yeah. So I just thought... I, mean, I had this idea when I was out walking and I thought I'd like to read a book that started with that. And so I, uh, so I got back and I just, you know, typed away on my laptop for about an hour. And I you found, finished the book? No, no, no. I've literally... like I mean, I'm midway through the opening chapter. This is All great. I know is what happens in the opening chapter. I don't know anything else yet. So is it is it fiction? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's fiction, yeah. Uh, it's basically the, the opening chapter is a drug deal and obviously because it's a book it's a drug deal that is going to go wrong is it contemporary it's very contemporary set yes. in Britain set in, set in, set in London set oh. in the East End yeah oh right yeah yeah yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. will there be some bearded coffee makers <laughs> in Sanders turning up yes there definitely will I'm going to say pretty pretty bad ending for anyone who turns up not wearing socks in the middle of February. Anyway, yeah. I've got something for you. There you go. Oh, yes. Oh, is this your new one? Brilliant. Well, oh, I've been asking for this. Yes. The, yeah, you did. You sent an email saying, where's my book? Where's my book? And, and yeah. So, the proof so this is a proof copy. So this isn't the file. So there might be the odd mistake in there. Okay, but well, that's fine. Not too much. Shall I just email you when I see a mistake? Is no, that a good bother. idea? Yeah, no, yeah. yeah. Really... I'll do that. That's not spelt right. Brilliant. I can't... Yes, knife edge. I can't wait. This will be read by the end of this week. Definitely. But I don't want it to interrupt your own tome. Well, no, and I don't want to obviously nick any of your ideas. Is there any <laughs> drug deals in yours? <laughs> uh, no, I don't think There's so. There's no. no right, well, in which case, perfectly safe. Do you know what? I And this is not going to give anything away. There is a sequence in The Sopranos, which uh, I'd uh, seen a couple of months ago. I, I saw this and I thought, what if that didn't end the way it happens in the TV show? It went a different way. Because there's a drug deal in The Sopranos that ends in a certain way, and I thought, what if it went a different way? And that's the start, the start of the book. Well, well, well. Well, well, well. Look forward it. to the next podcast when I've binned it off. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. Yes, uh, please. You can write to us at booksoftheyear at yahoo.com, mm -hmm. and yeah. you can tweet us at Books of the Year. I think that's all right. Yeah. Um, BJ Ramos. Uh, revisited this Books of the Year episode and I'm reading The Fifth Risk by Michael Lewis. This is a, uh, a couple of months ago. He was very entertaining. He explained so much about the current US uh, coronavirus response. Indeed, That's yes. interesting, actually. It's it is very good, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, if you wonder why it's a bit all over the place, it's because they sacked everybody who might have known what, what needed to be done. Correct, yeah. Um, Joel Braithwaite, again on Twitter, says, For Valentine's, I ordered our books by colour. Uh at instead of a dog, I'm guessing that's her husband, says it's probably the best Valentine's gift he's ever received. Grinning face with smiling eyes. 
And there it is, a picture of, well, basically it's two shelves. One of them, most of the spines are black and the other, most of the spines are white. I don't think I could colour code my books because there's all too many different colours. But yeah, good effort, Joel. Yeah, I'm not quite sure. I'd, I mean, you know. Uh, that was coherent, wasn't it? <laughs> now, um, Matt, it, when we talked to Ariana Neumann, because she is the uh, author who's on this particular edition of our podcast, uh, Matt will do, as he always does, describe the cover. So when Andrew Hunter Murray came in, uh, talking about his book, The Last Day, uh, Matt described the cover. Yeah. Uh, as in, and people will have looked at this cover. And then, like the following day, or a couple of days afterwards, yeah. thanks a lot, Andrew Hunter Murray, he tweeted saying, Here's a little game I've been playing, I've been meaning to play about the cover of The Last Day. Did you see the face? A, yes, of course, there's a face. B, no, what face? Oh, that face. And when I saw that, I thought, There isn't a face. It's amazing, isn't it? And then it? I looked at the cover and went, how did anyone miss that? How did, how did I miss that face? Because now, now that you see the face, that's all you can see. And I'm amazed that when he came in and I described the cover, quite obviously missing the big part about the cover. I don't think see... he'd noticed. No, no, that must I be. I didn't think. Yeah. I think the, in between yeah. us doing the podcast yeah. and that tweet, the artist said, have you noticed the face? And he went, no, I had Your what? face. Oh, that face. Your mum's face. <laughs> Your mum's face. And all that. <laughs> Anyway, yes, well done. <laughs> Take no, a look. Excellent stuff. Uh, Nick Johnson uh, says, "Hey, books of the year, review in advance of Simon reading out the re the rest of the first para in the next podcast, along with a great formatting howler from my early proof." Right, so this is an early proof of Knife Edge, which is the book I've just given you. Right, so this is the book. So, so, this... so Nicola Johnson is a book reviewer, blogger, influencer. Okay, whatever what they are. We want her on side, so you know, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and there was a typo. I mean, that's what I said. There aren't. That's the whole point of the advanced copies. There's the odd typo, and okay. then the proofreaders pick them up. Okay. Anyway, so then she then mentioned this line: "The sleeves of her sari had fallen back to reveal Simon Mayer." There you go. You see? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> does that mean? Does is so someone done a find and replace? No, That's what I thought. I th no, it's a it's a formatting thing because I think on the uh, on the online bit, which it, it's a bit like um, you know a tablet. It's on a tablet, and my name I think is at the at the top of each page. So I think that the name has run into so the name at the top of the page. Oh, I see. Has got transferred okay. to the actual text. It's not in the first paragraph of the book, though. No, no, it's not. Anyway, something to look forward to. And then I then there's uh, yeah Steve Smith replying to me. Because I tweeted the actual cover of the new yeah. book, which is coming out on uh, June the 11th. What do we infer from the fact that the cover doesn't appear to be gold embossed? Yes, because I can't remember who it was. Someone came in. Was it Lee Child? Someone, um, one of the authors came in and said, you can always tell when your publisher reckons you're going to make a lot of money on this book. That's that you make sure that the title is gold embossed. I can't help but notice that yours is not gold embossed yes i'm not sure that i would want it to be oh, gold you, oh yeah i see you don't want i said under now. no circumstances <laughs> yeah. do i need embossing in gold yeah actually yeah. i can tell you that um yesterday i got a lee child has read the book and he's sent in oh sent in a little quote has he yes which may well turn up on the cover oh will it did it say it's okay no he says sucks <laughs> not as good as mine <laughs> why did i get a cover like this yeah Anyway, so uh, if you want to get in touch, uh, books of the year at yahoo.com or you can tweet us at books of the year. Special guest time. 
What do you do when no one else is watching? What do you do that makes you happy for no reason at all? What are you obsessed with? I'm Leslie Arfin, and I'm a writer, but I'm also a dancer, a painter, a vapor, a dollhouse enthusiast, and basically just an overall hobbyist. My podcast, Filling the Void, is all about what other people are fanatically into. We talk about hobbies, even if you don't have one. Listen to Filling the Void on Tuesdays on the Erios Network. And subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This book is called When Time Stopped by Ariana Neumann. Hello, Ariana. How are you? I'm very well. It is Neumann. It is. It is. Cause I, I have seen this spelling, but also someone saying Newman. So. Yes, absolutely. You can, I, I, I respond to everything. <laughs> uh, why is that funny? <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I like that. I respond to everything too. Um, give it, and Matt, just um, describe the cover yes. and also read the full title um, of, of the book. Okay, so the full title is When Time Stopped, A Memoir of My Father's War and What Remains. Now, the cover itself is dominated by two colours. It's gold and blue. And what you're looking at is it, it very much evoking clockwork, so the, in, the insides of a watch. Um, and that's all picked out in gold with the bottom is a skyline. Now, I think you've you've told us that this is the Prague skyline, isn't it? Because that would make sense, given where the story takes place. And yes, uh, When Time Stopped in, in blue and, and white. And that's the UK cover. If you're listening in America or Australia, you'll yes. have a different cover. Uh, and you feel free to email the programme and, uh, <laughs> and describe the way it looks in your particular uh, bookshop. But that's an interesting <laughs> title, Ariana. So When Time Stopped is a great title. And then A Memoir of My Father's War and What Remain. So just explain how you came by this story and how you came to write the book. So I came, I mean, it didn't start off as a book. It was a personal journey of discovery. I wanted to solve the mystery of my father. So I grew up in Venezuela with a very mysterious father. And I, I knew by the time he died that there was a mystery there. And he left me a box filled with clues that have allowed me to piece together his mystery. But they've also allowed me to find this wonderful family that I didn't know existed, and some of whom survived the war, most of whom didn't, and, and sort of trace their children and um, bring them back to life. So, uh, you, I mean, just intrigued about the way you describe your father, you know, you, that you always knew he was mysterious. When you were growing up, we'll explain what the mystery and what's in the box uh, in just a moment, but how young were you when you, as far as you're aware, you remember thinking that there was a mystery? So I always, I always felt my father was different, and I grew up in the Venezuela of the 70s and the 80s, and most of the fathers around, around, you know, my uncles and and fathers of my friends, were much younger than my father. My father was much more successful. He was very wrinkled. He was 50 by the time I, time I came along, and he was very, very successful. And it's not that he wasn't affectionate, but there were things that he just didn't talk about. So he didn't talk about f- silly stuff. He called them tonterias. He didn't talk about feelings. He was very, very engaged and always busy. And he was pretty obsessive about certain things. So he was obses- obsessive about timekeeping and order. And he collected, amongst other things, watches. He had 297 of those. And there was just no talk at all about... I knew he had left Prague Czechoslovakia in 1949 with his older brother and come to Venezuela. I always thought he was escaping 
communism and, and, a, and a Europe that had been sort of destroyed by war. But there was never any talk about what he left behind whatsoever. So I didn't know anything about his life before. I didn't know anything about his family. And in a house that was filled with photographs, there was only one photograph of my grandparents. And it was a very peculiar picture because it was a picture of these two people looking pretty miserable, not looking at each other, not looking at the camera, just looking, sitting around a table, just literally looking incredibly sad. And that was by my father's bedside. And it was a fading picture and it was never talked about. And that that was it. That was the only thing I really had. So I knew there was, well, I, I knew there was a, uh, there was obviously something that he wasn't speaking about. And it wasn't until I was maybe in 1980, when I was eight or nine, I had a d detective club and we were spying on my father because he was a really interesting guy to spy on because he had all these little rituals. Anyways, one of my cousins reported that he had moved a box from this room, this windowless room at the back of a corridor where he repaired watches, and that he had moved this box in a weird manner, as if it was really heavy, over to um, a room where we kept all the books, so we called it a library, and that he had, there was obviously, my cousin reported, there was obviously some treasure, something really important there. And I waited, I grew up as an only child, so I waited for my cousins and my friends to go, and maybe because it involved my father, I decided that um, I was going to go and do it on my own and I found that box and I opened it and I was really disappointed. There was no treasure, there were no watches, there was just some old papers and as I leafed through them, one of them was a pink card and it had a photograph of my father and I, I mean, he looked like, I mean, it was unquestionably him even though obviously it was a version, he was much, much younger in the photograph. It was his eyes and it made no sense because it had a stamp of Hitler. It said Berlin 1943. And I knew my father was from Prague, not from Berlin. And the name on it was not my father's. It didn't say Hans Neumann. It said a name I had never heard before, which is Jan Sebester. So that terrified me. And I think it brought to the fore all these other little clues. So my father would wake up screaming in the middle of the night when I was a little girl. And he had terrible nightmares and he'd be covered in sweat and he'd be screaming in a language that I didn't understand, that I now know would have been Czech and or German. Didn't the box disappear and you didn't see it again for quite a while? Yeah, it was decades, actually. So, I mean, I saw it about 22 years later. My father had died and he was a collector of things. And amongst, I mean, in addition to watches, he collected art, but he also collected every little scrap of paper that anyone had ever given him, regardless of whether it was a receipt or a note or a letter. So I was living in London. I had flown back to Caracas after his death, expecting to spend weeks sorting through his papers. And I was astonished because as I opened the drawers, everything was empty, except for one drawer. And in that drawer, he had very kindly kept all the notes that I had ever written to him. He had kept all the notes that my mother had ever sent to him. And then below that, there was that box, the same box I had found as a child detective with that ID card, and it was just crammed with papers. And those papers um, told the story of how your father had been caught up in and has, had escaped from the Holocaust um, in the, during the Second World War. Um, I have to say, Ariana, I read this book a couple of months ago. It is astonishing. It is uh, easily 
one of the best books I've read. And so if we if we read about a book in this uh, podcast this year, we'll have done very well. It is so good. I've been talking to so many people telling them to read this book now. We're going to get to something here where I, I want to ask you a question that normally I would never ask an author when they come in to talk about a book. And that is because a, a bit like when uh, we're talking about movies, you don't want to give away spoilers. Okay. However, when I've been recommending this book to friends and to my wife, there is a sequence that I always mention. And I'll say this now. If this book is made into a movie, this sequence is in the trailer. It's absolutely in the trailer because it will get people through the door. Okay, but I am conscious that this happens two-thirds of the way into the book. And so you might want to hold it back and say, no, no, I want people to find out about that when they read it. My advice would be, if you want people to go out and buy this book, talk about this sequence. I want to talk to you about Berlin. Okay. okay? And I want to talk to, about, talk to you about your dad's... First of all, your dad going to Berlin, which, by the way, happens in movies, doesn't happen in real life, but this did happen, and you have the documentary evidence to back it up. But also, I want to talk about what your father did in Berlin, which is astonishing. Just astonishing. So let's talk about the first thing first. Okay. Your father going to Berlin. So let's put, put everyone in the, in the where, where, where we are in time of place. The Holocaust is on. If you're Jewish, you are constantly in fear of your life. And what does your father do? So my father is 22. He has studied chemistry. His family have all been deported. His father's gone to, to Theresienstadt. His mother's gone to Theresienstadt. His cousins have all gone. The only one that's left behind is his brother, who is a little bit older than him and who is protected by being married to a non-Jew. My father's 22. He gets the deportation notice. Now, one of the things that my father and his brother had arranged, which is also quite astonishing, perhaps not quite as astonishing as what he does next, was to organize some contraband to be snuck into the camp of Theresienstadt, which is just outside of Prague. And there would be weekly parcels sent to my grandparents with food, supplies of, of, of any, all sorts, um, and hair dye and, and currency. And the couriers that took those in brought out letters. And those letters said in no uncertain terms, do whatever you have to do, stay safe, but do not come here. So when his transport notice arrives on March the 9th, he absconds. He is immediately placed on the Gestapo wanted list, and the records are in, in Prague still today. And he is hidden for two months in a paint factory, in the paint factory that was owned by the family, by a very brave man called Mr. Novak whose children I have traced, and actually one of the daughters remembers the fights between Mrs. Novak, who was just astounded and horrified that her husband was taking this huge risk by harboring a Jew. And my father is there. He knows the Gestapo are going to find him because the obvious place for, to look for him is obviously, you know, home, the place of work. So he is, you know, he's pretty desperate. And his best friend who he had studied chemistry with, who he had done all, he belonged to a pranksters club with, comes in, visits him one night. Um, he has been posted to Berlin like a lot of non-Jews. He was part of the war machine and was a forced laborer in Berlin. He comes in, and I presume with quite a lot of bottles of alcohol, um, they have a lovely evening together. And he says jokingly, if only you could come and help me in Berlin. We're so overworked we could really use a good chemist. And my father decides that that's exactly what he's going to do. So there's a saying in Czech, and actually this is the Czech title of the book, and I, I rather love it, 
which goes something like the darkest shadow is just beneath the candle. So if you're going to hide anywhere, you don't hide in the periphery where the light illuminates you. You hide in the center of it all. You go to the place where the shadow is at its darkest. You go to Berlin. So that's what he does. He convinces, convinces Denik to go back to Berlin, ask for permission to come back to Prague, lend him his passport. His girlfriend, um, my father's girlfriend is called Mila, basically gives him her ID because, of course, her ID would not have had the J for Jew, um, and they doctor that. But, of course, they can't use Denik's name. So with an ID in a fake identity that they create, which is based on a little nursery school rhyme of Jan Sebesta gets out of town, um, they choose the name Jan Sebesta. They arbitrarily choose the town of Altbunslau, and, um, and they change the date of birth. And my father goes with this identity and Stenik's passport and decides to take the midnight train from Prague to Berlin on May the 3rd, 1943. 1943, he's going to the heart of the Third Reich Yes, so all, as a Jew. Exactly. So all the Jews are, you know, they're escaping. They're getting out of the Reich or they're staying put. And my father decides to do the craziest thing imaginable, which is to do the opposite. He's going to go to the heart of it all because that's the only place the Nazis wouldn't expect a and Jew to go and hide. You include within the book, you have all this documentation to, to back all of this up. Because I, I think you you actually start one chapter by saying, whenever I tell historians this, they all sort of roll their eyes and go, yeah, I'm not going to slag off your dad, but this obviously couldn't have happened. And then you provide them with the documentary evidence and they can't believe what they're seeing. Do you want to talk about what your father actually does when he's in Berlin, which is, again, amazing? Yeah, so he gets to Berlin and he gets a job at this paint factory called Warnecke und Baum. The paint factory still exists today. It's no longer in Berlin. It's, it's headquartered in Bavaria, but it exists. And they um, were producing lacquers and paints for the Luftwaffe. So they were part of the war effort. My father manages to get a job there on a winner. I mean, really, on a sort of astoundingly convinces a Nazi who becomes his boss called Dr. Hogan that he is qualified and is going to help him and that to get him all his papers. So Dr. Hogan, a Nazi, employs it. And my father starts working for him and starts eventually passing off some of the papers that he comes across over to someone who is a member of the Dutch resistance who is also a forced laborer in the company. So he passes off intelligence and he remains in Berlin for two years. He's also volunteered as a firefighter, which is astounding. So when everyone, so the, even though he pretended not to be Jewish, as a Czech, he was still considered an inferior race. So the Germans weren't that happy that he was having relationships or affairs with uh, German widows. So as a punishment, they volunteer him and his friends Denik as firefighters. So when everyone else, when the bombs are raining on Berlin, everyone else is running to the shelters. My father and his friends Denik have to run out towards the bombs. People will, uh, at this point, I think, get a, a reasonable sense of how extraordinary your story is. I mean, and there are so many different little elements of this uh, of this book, which which we just want to mention and pass on. And then when people read it for themselves, they'll their jaw will drop all over again. <laughs> when you went, uh, you went back to Prague in 1990 mm -hmm. with your father. Can you just tell us a little bit about what happened there? Because that would have that would seem to a lot of people 
a moment when he would have told you everything? Yes, it, actually it seemed to me that that would be precisely what happened. So he was invited back after the Velvet Revolution. He was a very successful industrialist in Venezuela and I think they were trying to bring people back into Czechoslovakia, um, people that had emigrated. And he was one of those people invited and he initially said, no, I'm not going. And I said, please, come on, I'd, I'll go with you. I'd love to go. And, um, and, and we did. So we go together. We spent four days there. And it was absolutely astounding because my father was born in 1921. He had left in 1949. So he spent 20, I suppose if you count the two years in Berlin, 26 years of his life in Prague. And we got to Prague and it's as if he had erased the streets of Prague from his mind. So I have no sense of direction. I keep on getting lost, even though I've been living in London for 20 years. I literally get lost all the time. And he, he was getting even more lost than I was. And he really pretty much refused to do anything other than the touristy things until the last day. The last day I was saying, please, you know, we have just one morning. Can we please go and see the family house? And he said, OK, we have a train. We, you know, we have a plane to catch, but we have a few hours. Let's go. So we take a taxi to the outskirts of Prague. He shows me this pretty boring 19th century building, perfectly nice. He points at the first floor and says, that's where we lived. That's it. And I tried to ask him more questions. They were all pretty much sort of, you know, one word answers. And I was pretty disappointed. We get back into the taxi and we're heading back and we're just still in the suburbs. And he stops the taxi. He gets very agitated, stops the taxi and gets out of the taxi. So I follow him and I couldn't make sense. I mean, I just I couldn't make sense where we were. I had no idea. Prague is really rather beautiful. And this part of Prague isn't. It's a sort of industrial compound. There was... All I could see was some sort of old abandoned building, some train tracks with grass growing on them, a fence around it. And my father was standing by the fence. And just as I approached him to ask him why it was that we were there, I realized that the fence in front of me was just swaying. And it was swaying because he was holding on to these wire diamonds. And he was it was just swaying with the force of his sobs. And all he could say to me was, this is where we said goodbye. And he was so upset that I couldn't bring myself to say, you know, to whom. Or, I mean, I might have said to whom and he didn't answer. And I now, of course, know to whom, but I didn't then. So it was, um, I mean, that, I suppose that was all he could share with me. But it was, I mean, it was an unbelievably painful moment for him. Yeah. You mentioned right at the beginning, you, you made a reference, and I thought we need to come back to that. You were in a detective club. Oh, yes. And you were, you were a kind of a, an amateur sleuth. And I, and I wonder if your, your dad, who obviously knew that, did, did he want you to write this? Is this the memoir that he would like to have written but thought that you'd do it better? I mean, how do you think of it? Well, I think, um, well, I think two things. He definitely knew that I, I, I'm still a sleuth, I want you to know. It wasn't just when I was eight or nine. <laughs> I'm a real geek and I love, I love mysteries. So I, I, he knew and he knew that. So he knew um, I would solve, quote unquote, the mystery or at least piece it all together. And we had spoken when I was in my 20s. I said to him that I wanted to be a writer, as one does when you take a creative writing course at university. And he said, I'm writing some of my memoirs from the war, maybe one day you can look at them and edit them for me and we can do it together. And he had shown me one page and that was in 1992. He died in 2001, having never shown me anything else. But what he left me in the box amongst 
the dozens of documents from Berlin was 24 pages of this memoir. So I, 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 I don't know if he knew that I would write a book, but he certainly knew that I would piece it together. And I think he hoped that we would do it together. So in, in a strange way, because obviously he hasn't been around for 20 years, that's very much what we did. I think definitely, I certainly, having read the book, and I think anyone who reads the book and only knows you and your father through that book, everyone is going to think your father deliberately knew that you, because of your, your detective background, even as a young child, that he was leaving you this sort of trail of breadcrumbs because he wanted you to know. I, I do want to ask you, though, about... The, we've just passed the, um, the anniversary for the liberation of Auschwitz, and um, one of the things that, 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 that comes up quite a lot is why didn't people talk about this more in the years directly after? Now, there are multiple reasons why people didn't want to talk about it. But I'm interested in what you think as far as your dad is concerned, because, as we've already said, he, le he left these clues. He wanted you to find out and, and maybe even write about it. But what, what is your sense of why your father didn't want to talk about it for all those years? Well, I think two things. I think my father, and I think we all do this as parents, we try to protect our children. We try to protect them from the unfairness of the world and the evil, and we try to just shelter them a little bit. Um, so I think that was part of it and I think he was deeply deeply traumatized so I think to bring any of these memories back would have pretty much destroyed him and he was so effective at blocking them and and becoming someone else and becoming a very successful someone else um, that I think any you know he just I think bringing any of this back into the fore would have just been too much so I think it's it, you know. I, th I think I don't know if that, that Did, didn't want to see himself as a victim. And he, he very much he yeah. never ever wanted to see himself as a victim. And uh, you know, at the same time, I figured if you know, it's such a burden. Oh, well, such a burden. It's such a marvelous history, but it is very difficult to talk about it and pass it on without seeming like you're burdening your children with with a you know very difficult and possibly horrific past. When you were in the middle of this research, which has taken you a very, very long time to mm -hmm. piece together the story and all the travel and all the research, which obviously is a sleuth, you would part of it you'd have enjoyed the process, but obviously it's a very traumatic story to tell. Is was there a question that you would have loved to ask him, which you didn't? I mean, obviously you asked him loads of stuff and he just didn't reply for the reasons that you just explained. But if you could, is there a question you'd ask him? Oh, I think I have about 25 <laughs> questions at least that I would ask him. And it's difficult to think of just one. Well, you know, a few is fine. A few is fine. I have so many. I, I, I'd like to know how he went to sleep at night when he was in Berlin, knowing that his cover could be blown at any minute, knowing what was happening to his parents. Um, I, I wanted... I'd love to ask him if he knew, if if he knew about the camps and and, and what I mean. Obviously, he knew about the camps. He knew his his parents were in Theresienstadt, but if he really, really knew, and there is in the letters, there's some sort of uh, you certainly get the sense that my grandparents knew that once you were sent on holiday, they would call it because the letters are coded east. That was it. So I think they knew what was happening in Auschwitz. Um, yeah, I mean, I just have a gazillion questions to ask him, and, and I wish I wish I could have asked him, but I, you know, it was obviously not something that he could share with me, and yet he knew that I wanted to know enough to leave me this box. 
there are, there are many heroes in this book, not least obviously your father. But I want to talk about one of one of the other ones. I want you to tell us um, the story of is it Zdenka. Zdenka, yeah. Yeah, just tell us about her because she's not Jewish, um, but again, she performs amazing feats. Just just tell us about. Her. Oh, I think actually Zdenka is the hero, the heroine of the of the book. She is marvelous. So Stenka is not Jewish. She is 24 when the war starts and she is the fiance of my father's older brother Lothar and they eventually get married. And Stenka is incredibly beautiful physically as well as obviously <laughs> inside. She is astoundingly brave. She's financially independent and she is studying law. She drives her own car. She's quite she cuts quite the figure. And she could have chosen to be with anyone and she chooses chooses to be with my uncle who was obviously Jewish and chooses to take huge risks for the family so when the Germans first arrived in Czechoslovakia she starts ferrying around taking food to the ones that couldn't access it taking money taking you know just taking letters so that they could communicate and then when they are sent to the camps she's instrumental in setting up the contraband into the camps. And there's this incredible moment where my grandmother's transported in May 1942 and the family don't know what happens to her um, because the train actually, in, the train that she was on ended up going to Sobibor where everybody was shot on arrival. But my grandmother and the family didn't know this until the end of summer. I had actually fainted and had remained in Theresienstadt. So when the family find out that she's in Theresienstadt and that she's really only a few dozen kilometers away, Stenka decides that she's going to go into Theresienstadt, which is a camp, and she's going to sneak in and go and find my grandmother. Breaking into a camp. And that's exactly what she does. So she talks to resistance, she finds out how to do it, and, and she does it. She dresses up as an inmate of the camp, she waits for the laborers in the fields to go out, she meets them in the fields, and then when they come back into the camp for their you know little bit of water and disguised as soup, she sneaks in with them. She finds out where my grandmother is. And she just basically, as far as I can tell from her account and indeed from my grandmother's account, because it's in one of the letters, just goes there and they just hug each other and they just look into each other's eyes and she brings her love and, and much needed hope. Um, and then she sneaks again and in 1944, sorry. So she does it not once but twice. And then she finds my grandfather and takes him shoe polish so that he can dye his hair. So she's she's just incredible. So many astonishing stories in this book, which is called When Time Stopped by Ariana Neumann. Uh, this story isn't finished, is it, Ariana? What I mean is you've come to the end of the, this particular book. But tell us where you're going next after this after this recording. Oh, after this, um, I'm going to go talk to a producer um, who apparently is interested in making it into a film. So. I wonder why. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I think that's what everyone's going to think because yeah. it's still um, there are still so many stories that come out at this time. Uh, every every year we seem to stumble across these extraordinary stories. But for you, it's been what twenty years to, to piece together this. Well, a lifetime. It, I it guess, has. Really. It has. It was ever since I was a little girl. I grew up with this mystery that I wanted to solve, and um, finally have been able to solve it. But and as it, far as the writing is concerned, what do you do next? Because there's been such uh, interest and excitement about this book, you must want to go and follow it up somehow. I do. I want to solve another mystery and write about it. That's What's really that one, then? Oh, I can't tell you. <laughs> <laughs>
Okay. Uh, the book is When Time Stopped. Ariana Neumann, thank you so much. Uh, for more uh, with Ariana, you can look for our uh, the other bit of the podcast where Ariana will work her way through our very tough Q&A questions. Can't wait. Ariana, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you very much for having me. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.